Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Good morning. Good morning, treasure. Good morning, everyone else. I know what kind of church background y'all grew up in. Okay, so uh, today Tanner will be teaching from John 3, verses 1 through 15. And if you do not have a Bible, you can toss up your hand and somebody that Tanner did. Okay, Jordan will bring it to you. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, Nicodemus. We're going to meet Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus. Jesus answers the questions of his heart. Essentially, uh, Jesus, what does one have to do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus, what does one have to do to get to heaven? Jesus blows up Nicodemus's thoughts about eternity and about heaven and about salvation. And I'd really, for us this morning, just like to sit with this text and remind you, Christian, that the work has been done for you. The work has been done for you. You can't earn There's nothing that you have to do. You're just invited to rest. You're invited to rest in the finished work of Jesus for you. So just rest by faith in the Son of God who has made a way for you. We're going to look at this conversation and we're going to look back at what is probably an obscure Old Testament story from the book of Numbers, uh, obscure for, for a lot of us. And I just want to invite us all to just be in awe of who Jesus is this morning. And may we just sit in awe of the scriptures. May we take a humble posture before the word of God this morning. So I identify a lot with Nicodemus. 
I want to, maybe you're like me, I want to put a lot of hope in my good works. I really do want to put a lot of hope in my morality. But I need to be reminded of just how sinful I am. I need to be reminded of not only my sin, but also my forgiveness. My forgiveness completed through the resurrection of Jesus, of which I am assured salvation. My only hope in life and death is that we belong to Christ. It's that we belong to God through Christ. So there's a lot to learn here, but most importantly, I just want to call you back to your salvation, and I want to call you back to the cross, and I want to call you back to the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's just sit with that this morning. Uh, Before we dive in, let's pray um, and ask the Lord for help. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord, may we just rest and trust that you are good and that you are working, Lord, and that it is your kindness that leads us to faith and repentance. Holy Spirit, I'd ask that you would illuminate hearts and minds this morning, Lord, and that you would assure us that we are deeply loved and bought at such a high cost. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. All right, so we're still walking through the Gospel of John, and here we're being introduced to a new character in the New Testament. But more than the man Nicodemus, we're told of the office that he holds. The text tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most influential sect of Jews during this day. They are mentioned at least 20 times in the Gospel of John, and mostly, with the exception of here and perhaps one other place that we'll look at next year in John chapter 12, they are usually portrayed as antagonistic towards Jesus. These men were holy, at least externally holy, meaning they They did and they said all of the right things. Externally, they looked like they had it all together. They kept the rules. Uh, They looked like they were right with God. They looked like they were set apart. They looked like they were blameless. They looked holy. Pause real quick. I'd rather wear this than hold this. Hang on. Thank you. All right. 
All right, we're back. We're back. So these guys looked holy. Thank you, Gavin. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to yell. I was just trying to get your attention. <laughs> oh, all right. So these guys, they knew the law of the Old Testament, meaning they knew the do's and the don'ts that you see in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. They took this portion of Scripture, and they found out that God had given the people of Israel 613 laws. He gave them 613 rules, if you will, on how holiness is supposed to look. And the purpose of these laws was to remind us of God's holiness. God gave his people the law in order that they would know how to follow him. God gave his people the law in order to set them apart from the pagan nations that surrounded them. The law shows us that God is holy and we are sinful. And in order to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize all of the 613 commands. You had to have them memorized. It said that you could throw basically a dart through the book of Leviticus, and to the letter, they could go back in and fill out every damaged piece of parchment paper that that had been affected by this dart. But beyond that, the Pharisees took extreme measures to make sure that they were not going to break a single one of these commandments. They would put extra rules on their rules in order to ensure that they didn't even come close to breaking these laws or that they didn't come close to compromising themselves or their position in society. So, for example, God says, hey, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do no work on the Sabbath because it is a solemn day of rest. The Pharisees then went to extreme measures to define what would be considered work on the Sabbath. They made it less about God and more about themselves. They missed the whole point of the law. They missed the whole point of obedience to Jesus, to to God the Father. And that point was that the law was in place to lead us to worship and submission. And they made it a legalistic burden for everyone else to bear. So they would say, just for example, it is not lawful for a woman to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because she might notice a gray hair in her head and pluck it out. Work. Or another question, is it lawful for a man to tie a knot on the Sabbath? No. Is it lawful for a man then to tie a knot on a, on the Sabbath and attach his rope to a pail and use the pail to draw water out of a well so that his family could have water to drink? No, that's not lawful either. But a woman could tie a knot to the pail and attach it to, like, the sash of her robe and walk backwards uh, to draw water out of the well, not use her hands. That's not considered work. I know. It's weird. They had rules on how many steps you could take before it was considered work on the Sabbath. They went to extreme lengths to ensure that you were externally obedient to the law. These guys looked really good. They looked super clean and polished on the outside. They thought they were the most pleasing to God because of how they acted. Again, 
they are completely missing the point of the law. It also says in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. This means that he is a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be like if you were to take the United States Supreme Court and the United States Senate and put them together, this was the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 men from the Pharisees and their liberal counterparts, the Sadducees. And Nicodemus was a part of this group. So that means not only does he appear to be super holy, he has an extreme amount of influence in society. Verse 2. This man, being Nicodemus, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless uh, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus shows up at night. If you have basic cable in your past, this is Nick at night. Hey Thank you, treasure. I appreciate that. Yeah. So it may not seem significant to you that Nicodemus shows up at night, but anytime night is used in the New Testament, it is almost always in the negative connotation. For example, Judas goes out at night and betrays Jesus. Jesus uses the metaphor of nighttime to highlight that people walking in darkness or walking in sin always stumble. Nighttime is often synonymous with concealing your activity. So the Apostle John, the writer of this text, is making a specific point to highlight that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night in order to highlight that Nicodemus is in a spiritually dark place. Nicodemus does not really understand who God is. Nicodemus is curious about Jesus, but he is also trying to not be detected by his colleagues. He is unwilling, presently, to believe in Jesus. But in his mind, he sees this guy, Jesus, and he's like, there is something new and unique and fascinating about him. So Nicodemus approaches Jesus, and he does so respectfully. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. And in calling Jesus teacher, he is actually honoring Jesus. He is placing Jesus and himself on the same level. He's saying, Jesus, you're clearly from God. We, the Sanhedrin, we have seen what you do, and we have heard what you said. Can we talk about it? Nicodemus has some questions, but he isn't even given the opportunity to ask. Jesus peers right into his soul, and look at how he responds. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, this is translated amen and amen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus knows why Nicodemus is there. And he's saying, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see it. You cannot see it. You can't enter the kingdom of God. This is mind-blowing to Nicodemus because he is a Jew. 
So Jews believe that simply by virtue of their birth as Jews, apart from blasphemy and apart from apostasy, they are heaven-bound in their minds. To be born Jewish meant that you were in. But Jesus is saying, no, you must be born again. And not only that, Nicodemus is elite in his Jewishness. He knows the scriptures, and he thought he knew God because of his knowledge of the scriptures and his rule following. He thought that based on his behavior modification and his nationality, that that was going to be enough for him. Nicodemus clearly doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. He is thinking that Jesus is talking about a physical rebirth, but Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth. Jesus says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. John Piper says, the new birth is the creation of spiritual life, not the imitation of life. You see, Nicodemus is just like us, where it really matters. Nicodemus is just like us, where it really matters. He is physically alive, yes, but he, like all of us, are born spiritually dead. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We are born sinful, We are born treasonous God-haters, and God is holy and just and will not leave the guilty unpunished. There are consequences for our sin. Jesus is looking face-to-face at a man who appears to have it all together. Nicodemus has kept all the rules. And Jesus says, one thing you lack You don't really know God. All of this religion, all of this rule following is leading to nowhere but pride and arrogance. Or perhaps it's leading you to shame and despair, depending on how good you are at keeping the rules. Listen to me, church. Your biggest problem is that you are a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness. Jesus says, Nicodemus, being born a Jew doesn't count for anything. You must be born of water and the Spirit. And here we have perhaps a doctrinal issue. Not perhaps. This is a doctrinal issue. So what does it mean, water and Spirit? This verse has split Christian denominations throughout the centuries. So we get to this discussion of baptismal regeneration. The question is, does baptism save you? So let me give you four possible interpretations of verse 5, and then I will tell you where uh, Redeemer Church leadership lands and why. It is possible that Jesus is saying that a person needs John's baptism that we looked at in chapter 1, a baptism that comes from uh, repentance, a baptism in the spirit of Jesus. Support from this view comes from the fact that all previous mentions of water in the book of John are referencing to John's water baptism. 
That's chapter 1, verses 26, 31, 33, for example. The baptisms here seem to be synonymous with, with this. Uh, another possible interpretation is that Christian baptism, believer's baptism, is in view. That you must submit to baptism in order to be saved. Some who hold to this view uh, use passages like the long ending of Mark to justify their position. That's uh, like Mark 16, 9 through 20. Um, we believe uh, that the book of Mark ends at 16, 8, and the last 10 and 11 verses or so were added a couple centuries later. Um, but it says, repent and be baptized and at the end of that. A third possible interpretation is that the water here represents physical birth. So in order to be saved, one must be born physically and then reborn spiritually, to which I would say, well, duh, because how can you be saved spiritually if you weren't first born physically? Uh, I don't think that this is what this is talking about either. So here is where, there's interpretation number four, and this is where church leadership lands. This is known as credo-baptism. Uh, water and spirit here is a double metaphor. So if you're into like grammar and language arts, this is what's known as a hendiatus. It's where you have words, two words, or, or two metaphors describing one concept. So we see in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, and we see in the Gospel of John in chapter 4 and in chapter 7, for example, that water is used as a metaphor for the Spirit. So John 4.10, for example, we see Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in, will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7, 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Further, in the original Greek, these two words, water and spirit, are sharing the same preposition, thus linking them together as one thought. In the Greek, it reads ex, which is of or from, hydatus, water, chi, and pneumatus, spirit, water and spirit. D.A. Carson says, if water equals baptism, and this is so important, uh, for entering the kingdom of heaven, it is surprising that the rest of the discussion never mentions it again. The entire focus is on the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, the work of God himself, and the place of faith in the believer. So water and Spirit are related. They appear in the Old Testament to signify cleansing and purity and a transformation of the heart to follow God fully. Water and Spirit are one. Just like in verse 6, spirit and flesh are in opposition to one another. Verse 6 says that that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. The physical can only give birth to the physical. Flesh begets flesh, and spiritual rebirth is only possible by the Spirit of God. 
What this shows us is that we can't make ourselves be born of the Spirit. It's an act of God who gives us the faith necessary to believe. This is only accomplished by the power of God to call us to this salvation. We aren't born of the Spirit by striving to be a better person or by following the rules. We are born of the Spirit by the power of God to give us the faith necessary and to call us to himself through the Holy Spirit at work in us. It is the kindness of the Lord to draw us to faith and to draw us to repentance through the Holy Spirit. Being born again is a work of God to us. Verse 7, do not marvel, says Jesus. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says that the wind, the word is pneuma in the Greek, rua in the Hebrew, the wind blows where it wants to. And you don't know where it's coming from. But you know it's there. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The word in Greek for spirit and wind is pneuma. The Spirit is like wind. The same word is used to describe both and also the breath that we breathe. We don't always know why the wind blows or where it's going, but we feel its effects on us. And the same is true of the Spirit of God. This is sort of like a mini parable of Jesus. In the first century, for those outside of the faith, it wasn't easy to explain what was happening as people were being converted to Christianity. But it was possible to see the results of the work of the Spirit in their lives because they were following Jesus now. They had forsaken their pagan religions and their pagan worldly practices and started following the life and the teachings of Jesus. Their life, their lives had become some witness to some unseen realities. And that's the calling of us today, on us today. Is this true of your life? Do others see Jesus in the way you live your life? Has the Spirit of God, who is indwelling you, Christian, changed you? Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus is blown away. This is different from anything I have ever heard before, Jesus. And Jesus responds with a challenge. Nicodemus, if anyone should understand this, it's you, buddy. You're the teacher of Israel, and you are missing the point. Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit of God. 
This is an earth-shattering, worldview-altering moment for Nicodemus. He is approaching to Jesus kind of expecting like a good job, dude. Well done. And Jesus isn't saying, good job, man. You've done so good at following the rules. You've done so good, but just add this one little thing and we'll be good. Instead, he's saying, this is the only thing you need. This is the only thing you need. And this puts every single one of us in the same place. Jews, Gentiles, moral, religious, rule-following people, completely lost in sin people, we all need the same thing, and it is offered to us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Nicodemus, you have missed it. Church, what about you? What about you? Have you missed it too? Are you functioning, functioning like you just have to be good enough? And surely God will have to love me. If I just do this, this many times for this long, God will accept me. Are you functioning like God owes you forgiveness and mercy because you show up? I'm showing up to a church service. I'm doing all the stuff or I'm not doing all the stuff that I'm, quote, supposed to do or, quote, not supposed to do, unquote. Listen, friends, Jesus isn't calling you to behavior modification. Jesus isn't calling you to change your behavior in order to get right with God. Jesus is calling you to a cross. He's calling you to a cross. Jesus isn't calling you to rules. He's calling you to die. To die to yourself and be dependent on him. Jesus then takes it even further. He says, I came to bear witness to God the Father and to testify to the truth and make known to you the way of salvation through faith. And then Jesus says, I'm him. I am this Messiah. Nicodemus, your long-awaited Messiah is here. I am he the Son of Man, and I have authority to speak on heavenly things because I created them. And then Jesus makes perhaps the boldest proclamation he can make. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus, here's that obscure scripture reference I was talking about. Um, if you're doing like the yearly Bible reading plan, uh, this usually comes after you give up. <laughs> uh, so Jesus pulls out this obscure reference. At least it's obscure for probably most of us. It's something found in the book of Numbers, Numbers 21. Uh, 
and I'm going to read that to us if you want to flip over there in your Bible. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I feel like that is probably the second worst way to die. Uh, just, just throwing that out there. So just to summarize the story, uh, the people grumbled against God and Moses. They grumbled against God. Think about this for a second. They grumbled against God. A couple weeks ago, they were in slavery, and he rescued them, and now they're mad at him. They grumbled against God, who had rescued them from slavery and provided them food every single day in the desert. So God raised up these serpents and snakes, and they bit the people, and the people died. Once they realized what they had done, they repented, and God provided a way for them to be healed. He tells Moses, make a, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. So Moses raises up this serpent, puts it on the pole, and carries it around the camp. All you had to do was look at this snake on a stick and be healed. My pastor growing up preached this text and called it the look and live portion of Scripture. But what Jesus is doing, he's calling Nicodemus through their conversation to Christ's crucifixion. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up in order for you to be saved. These fiery serpents and numbers are pointing us to a deeper reality. Sin is like this snake bite, only with far greater consequences. It not only leads to death, but it leads to eternal separation. And if you're really honest about your sin, eternal separation is what we deserve. God has given us his commands, and we willfully disobeyed and chose to not honor God with our lives. So Jesus must be lifted up. Having condescended, having come down to earth, the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up again, but not in the way that we think. He must be nailed to a cross and lifted up in humiliation for you. When we hear lifted up, we're probably tempted to think of exaltation, 
But Jesus uses this phrase, lifted up. It's one word in the Greek, and it's always pointing to not Christ's exaltation, not his ascension, but his humiliation at his crucifixion. Moses lifted up a bronze snake in the wilderness to rescue sinful rebels from their physical death. Jesus was lifted up by sinful rebels on a cross to save them from their spiritual death. God's provision for spiritual death is lifting up of himself. God's provision for your salvation is offering himself on your cross. The bronze snake points us forward to the cross of Christ, where the most undeserved people receive a pardon and receive forgiveness. Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can a man be born again? Jesus' response to this question is provided to Nicodemus by Jesus pointing him towards the cross. You can be born again by faith. Eternal life is only possible because Jesus went to the cross to pay for the penalty against sin that was rightfully ours to bear. Jesus took our punishment on himself and died for us, and now eternal life is only possible because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose victoriously. He defeated sin and death. He has purchased your pardon against your sinful, disobedient rebellion. He has taken it all upon himself. There's nothing you have to do, and to be honest, there is nothing you could ever do but receive his forgiveness. There is nothing you can do to earn it. You repent. You believe that Jesus has purchased you. Through faith that is given to you, you can walk in assurance, and you can rest in your sonship, your adoption, John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. But not just knowing about God, but actually knowing God through Christ. Think about that for a quick second. We oftentimes equate our salvation uh, our salvation as believers is like some future distant reality. When I die, and that is certainly true. However, we get to have a relationship with God now. All the benefits of being God's son or God's daughter belong to you now. God through Christ has made a way for us to know him and have a relationship with him. We can approach God through the blood of Jesus in confidence because Jesus is pleased with you. Son or daughter, Jesus is pleased with you. We are born spiritually through the will of God. God, through the Holy Spirit, is the one who regenerates us, who makes us sons and daughters. He is the one who gives us new life through Jesus, who has made it possible by humbling himself to the point of death so that we may be exalted by faith in him who has made it possible. So I'm going to close with this. 
How are you like Nicodemus? How are you like Nicodemus? If I'm going to be really honest, and I think I should be, uh, I am a lot like Nicodemus. I think if I'm really, really honest, there are times when I wrestle with unbelief. Like in my head, I know all the right things to say. I know all the right things to do. But sometimes I just feel so entitled. I far too often, and I know I'm not alone in here, so I know this is a safe place. I far too often lean on my own morality as my functional savior rather than Christ who has saved me. And what's really going on in those moments when I'm trusting in myself instead of Christ, what I am saying in that moment is I am God. I am God of my own life. Because my morality is the standard by which every single one of us should be living. And that is just emphatically a false view. God has set the standard. And I miss it so often. But Christ Christ is still pleased to offer forgiveness to the most morally religious people and the most wayward. Do you think your religious acts please God? Because they really don't if you don't know him. Are you relying on anything other than Jesus to make you right with God? Whether you are super straight-laced, whether you're a perpetual legalist, that's my camp, by the way, Uh, whether you are licentious and wild as all get out, the offer is the same. And that offer is to believe in the God of the universe who has invited you to rest in him. And we get to rest in him through faith and dependency. When we rely on anything other than Jesus, we are living and functioning out of unbelief. And so that's just an invitation for you to examine your own life and to see where that is true of you. Where are you functioning out of unbelief? Where are you depending on yourself? just want to invite you to repent and believe in the great God of the universe who has taken it all upon himself for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.